Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Introducing Peacock, the new free streaming service from NBC Universal. It's hit movies, current shows, live sports, trending bits, and timeless hits. And that's why you can't not watch. Peacock. Watch for free. Upgrade for more. Stream now at PeacockTV.com. Law and Order SVU streaming now. Hello, my name is Dave Hanready, and there will be no popcorn. That's the atmospheric sounds of The Crow and Nine Inch Nails, of course, doing their wonderful Joy Division cover of Dead Souls, which features in the movie David Higgins. Back once again. How's it going? I'm good. You, you, you've completely thrown me with that intro music, even though I knew it was the intro music because I thought you were, we were just playing the song. I didn't know we were getting the crow noises. I thought there was a bird outside your window. I've gone all in this time, man. I've gone all the way in. I've sourced some clips, you know, like I really tried to get the atmosphere going. It's a very atmospheric film, and that's what we'll be talking about later in the show as part of No Popcorn's continuation series. We are in spooky season now, so I picked something of a spooky movie, Brandon Lee's final film, a goth classic for some. Others might not love it so much. We'll find out how we feel about it a little bit later on. But first, what have you been watching, sir? Well, uh, The Crow is part of our uh, our spooky season, and I have been keeping up with that, trying to get my one horror in a day. Uh, I think that's the recommended amount. I do want to take a quick sidestep, because I did watch one movie that's non-horror related. I watched uh, Dick Johnson is Dead, which is a documentary that's currently on Netflix. It's uh, directed by Kirsten Johnson, who is primarily a cinematographer for documentaries, uh, biggest project she would have worked on was the uh, Edward Snowden documentary Citizen Four. Um, this one is a very personal project um, about her father, Dick Johnson, who is 85 at the beginning of the movie and he has 
the beginnings of Alzheimer's. Uh, she's also lost her mother to Alzheimer's, so it's something that the family has had to go through. So as a kind of a, a way of like dealing with the grief, uh, her father moves in with her and she basically makes a movie where they repeatedly kill him uh, in, a, in a manner, lots of different kind of darkly humorous uh, ways of him falling in the stairs. He'll have a air conditioner dropped on him. He'll be bludgeoned by a construction worker. So you have all these kind of very fantastical um, scenes that are staged uh, that go kind of hand in hand with, you know, the day to day of her being with her father. It's like very, very darkly darkly funny uh, both in uh, it's kind of it's fantasy scenes and and just their kind of outlook and the way that they kind of deal with the the kind of imminent mortality of her dad like there's a scene where he's just like you know you have permission you can euthanize me um but you know as well as being like very very funny it's like it's, it's absurd it's uh, it's absolutely like it's a gorgeous gorgeous film uh I know that people might be keeping score on, uh, on No Popcorn, so I, I feel the need to say that, yes, I did cry watching this. Like, destroyed me. Absolutely destroyed me. I haven't cried in this year. So the first one for 2020, um, it's, uh, it's a real kind of like you watch it and then it's like call someone you love directly after it. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. Um, and it does kind of have like a very played out version of kind of one of the better jam sketches. If you ever watch Chris Morris's jam, there's a, there's a great uh, sketch with Kevin Eldon uh, around a funeral. And they kind of basically do that, but in real life. Uh, and what is kind of very funny and dark in, in jam is like amazingly affecting and will absolutely destroy you. So that's, that's that out of the way. Um, On to spooky season. Um, I've been doing a couple of double bills Uh one of the first ones I did was uh, The Shining. I don't think I need to talk about The Shining and how The Shining is great. I think there's been enough said about The Shining. Um, but I back-to-backed this over two nights, technically, with um, Doctor Sleep, the, the sequel to The Shining that came out last year, directed by Mike Flanagan, starring Ewan McGregor as Danny Torrance, all grown up, but with all the same issues that, that his daddy Jack had. Um didn't fully work for me. It's 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 an utterly batshit um, plot. I'm. Have you you haven't seen this, Dave? Have you? I haven't. No, but I'm aware of at least one scene in particular that everyone seems to have taken a lot of issue with. Where I believe poor cute little Jacob Tremblay is horrifically murdered. Like it's a horrific child murder that goes on for way too long for some kind of mainstream Hollywood popcorn movie. Yeah, he he gets he gets got good. Um, I think they, they would say, but I remember when he, I remember when the book was coming out, and the book only came out maybe about seven years ago. But like the premise of it alone is, it's a sequel to The Shining. Uh, obviously, Stephen King wasn't himself particularly happy with uh, Kubrick's version of The Shining because he cut a lot of it out. Um, he kind of stripped it down to its bare bones, and um, King didn't like where it went to the point that he executive produced and wrote a TV movie version of The Shining in the in the late 90s that's utter garbage um, but in this um, Danny is basically still has The Shining but he's going up against uh, this this cult of like soul sucking vampires who drive around you know uh, camper vans around the midwest of America feeding on the steam of children 
uh, the steam being the shining of, of children. There, there, there's elements of that, that like the, the, the aforementioned scene with Jacob Tremblay, um, Rebecca Ferguson is, the, is their leader as Rose the Hat. Um, she's called Rose the Hat because she wears a hat and that's, that's all you need to know, basically. There's, there's not much more of it in there. Um, the, those scenes are good. They're all very well directed, but the kind of the struggle that it has is that it's a it's a sequel to you know Stephen King's version of The Shining, but it's using all the iconography of Stanley Kubrick's, and it kind of can't get away from that. Um, it very very jarringly recasts people from The Shining. Like you know, first it's, this is not a spoiler. Like first scene, you're getting a a different person as Danny Torrance, a different person as uh, Shelley Duvall's character. And it's very, very jarring. You, you know where this movie is going to go in its, its final act. It kind of veers into weird uh, fan fiction that we'd already got a little bit with Ready Player One. It's, it's two movies kind of jar- going up against each other. Uh, neither of them seem to work. It's kind of trying to please everyone and didn't really please me. Um, wouldn't recommend. What I would recommend is... I always like to get a bit of David Cronenberg in at this time of the year. Uh, and I watched uh, Existence, which I hadn't watched back in the day. This is his uh, 1999 movie with Jude Law and Jennifer Jason Lee. It was released, I think, if not within a few weeks, but in and around the same time as The Matrix. So you kind of got a slew of of kind of Y2K thrillers at the at the end of uh, the 90s, including Dark City by Alex Proyas, who we'll be talking about later. Um, and they all kind of like have a technolo- technological anxiety of, of what's coming down the line. But of course, with this being David Cronenberg, the way he manifests his is with disgusting, gooey orifices uh, that people plug, you know, umbilical cords into and that need to be like lubricated this movie is absolutely insane going beyond its, you know, visually, um, it's, it's idea of virtual reality where, you know, you just have like a, you know, a sack of guts that you kind of rub and it's a, it's a living organism. Um, much like most of his movies, uh, it's, you know, it's very, very funny. Um, the special effects are amazing. He is an utter pervert and I love him. Very, very dearly. <laughs> and <laughs> lastly, want to touch on uh, is Cat People, a 1942 black and white B movie that's really, really kind of B movies doing it a disservice. It has a very, very B movie, B movie plot. It's about a, a, a Serbian woman in the US who fears, because of the, the town that she's from and the, uh, the stories that they tell there, that if she becomes sexually aroused, she will turn into a cat, in, the, in this case, a panther. Um, and she, she, meets, uh, she meets a man, falls in love with him. It's, it's, it's kind of very, you know, it's shot in, you know, 1940s, uh, you know, Hollywood studio, but with this kind of like very, very elevated plot. Um, it's gorgeous looking though. The cinematography is absolutely amazing. There's so much uh, details in the shadows in it. And it is the original movie to have a jump scare no way yeah uh, they would call they called it the Luton bus in it and um, there's a scene where you know she's being kind of like thinks that she's being followed and then you know just smash a, a bus you know screeches in from nowhere and it's like an immediate like oh um they named it after the producer but yeah the first a staple a staple of horror movies 
what have you been watching, David? Well, hang on, before I reveal what I've been watching, did it make you jump? Or is it completely tame by today's standards? No, I mean, I think you are, we're kind of built, uh, you know, ready for that. Much like, you know, when you watch Psycho now, we've watched so many things that have um, taken from Psycho that that is just part of the kind of language that we understand about filmmaking. Um, one thing about Cat People, I haven't got to it yet. It's, it's another one of my double bills. There is a remake of it from the 80s, uh, directed by Paul Schrader. He, the writer of Taxi Driver, made First Reformed. Uh, score by Giorgio Moroder. I have said that I, I will be playing this <laughs> for no popcorn. Um, I think there's some Bowie involvement as well. I'm expecting a, a much more lurid, R-rated uh, you know, romp in this one, but I'll get back to that. Maybe next time I'll, I'll check in on it. I've definitely seen some of that cat people when I was too young to see it. I think Nastasia Kinski's in it, possibly, um, yeah. if that makes sense. What have I been watching? I also very much in spooky season. I've only watched one non-horror film this month, which was Minority Report. But I guess for some people you could say it's a horror, um, even though it isn't. Um, yeah, I, I guess a selection of what I've gone through. Like In terms of new discoveries, Raw was excellent, the French film, which I hadn't seen before. Uh, really, really good. Better than I thought it would be. I kind of avoided it. I thought it would be like a very, very kind of casually almost nastily visceral it it is nasty in a way but it's i think it's tempered quite well and it has an incredible score and has an amazing cut to credits it's one of the great like end of film bang credits and i was like yeah sold love it it's excellent debut feature as well for the director very very impressive gorgeous to look at really enjoyed it um I've also been kind of like dipping into some random stuff here and there. Mask of the Red Death from uh, the 60s, which is a Roger Corman film with Nicholas Rogue on cinematography and Vincent Price uh, as a evil prince, a plague breaks out nearby and he takes rich people and some poor people into his castle. He's a Satanist and it's all about him trying to cheat death and it's it's fun. Vincent Price has a ball, as you might expect. Um got some questionable stuff in it here and there but it has a great beginning and a great ending it like it almost makes me kind of want to follow those characters a bit more but for the for for its time like it is kind of a colorful feast and it's done quite well uh, i went to the hills of eyes remake alexandra aha or however you pronounce his name um who of course has made stuff like crawl in recent times um it's a nasty fucking film is the hills of eyes 2006 i mean like there's some brutality in there that i don't need um like there's like a rape sequence and i just kind of feel like you know can we not leave this out generally i think you know and we'll probably mention when we're talking about the crow as well because that is in there um and it's like i just kind of feel like have we not said all we need to say with this plot device that's all it ever often is unless it's a film like l the paul verhoeven film which i watched recently where that drives the entire plot and again i could see why like anybody might object and i think anyone who does object to the use of that in their fiction is absolutely within their rights to do so it is a layer more horrible i would argue than death in terms of you know its presentation and also for anyone who would have experienced something like of a horrific horrific nature it's not something that like i want to really see in my entertainment um i will say that in the hills of eyes remake at least in terms of the scene it's in like it's part of an overall real fucking concoction of horror that i think works i i think that the whole scene as a like as a sequence works in terms of like creating a real step up. And this was the mid 2000s when like all bets were off in terms of like sadism kind of filtering through to American cinema. Um, it's a strange film, the Hills of Eyes remake. It's not like the original isn't amazing either, but I think when it gets going, like there's a scene later on in the film where one of the characters is like trying to get his baby back and he goes into this like 
nuclear village thing and there's like standoff in a house versus him versus like a mutant and even though it lays it on real thick in terms of its you know american allegories and stuff it's very effective like it is like okay well for what this is and for the glut of those kind of films you're getting at the time it's kind of superior but it's still you know no more than the real three out of five but like it does get you like i think it does have moments that are properly good but in terms of properly properly good some of the stuff i've been watching um I went back to I Saw the Devil, which is a South Korean revenge film like few others. And it's your typical thing here where it's just like gorgeously photographed uh, horror, just like disgusting. For anyone who hasn't seen this film, approach it with caution. I would suggest it's like a two hour 20. It's about a guy whose wife is murdered and he goes after the killer. The killer is played by your man from Old Boy, Choi Min-sik, I believe. And uh, Lee Byung-hung is your kind of white bread hero guy world's worst secret agent by the way just like fuck me it's 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 comedic in terms of just how dark it gets but there are times when i'm watching it and i'm just like this is too much although it was it was a rewatch for me i believe you have seen this film i have yeah um i i think i need a little bit of time before i go back to it but yeah just in terms of uh you know we're probably going to talk about uh villains and people who are great villains uh Choi Min-sik has got to be up there, you know, between this and like Lady Vengeance, just in terms of playing utterly reprehensible, disgusting uh, people who do the worst things in the world. Uh, he's very, very good at it. I'm sure he's a lovely man, but, you know, he, he just seems to he seems to embody it so, so well, uh, particularly in this. Yeah, it's almost it's almost too convincing in a way. Uh, staying with uh, some Asian extreme audition from 2001, I think it is, or maybe 99. Um a film I would have bought, like I would have gone to Dublin and bought it, you know, in like Forbidden Planet or whatever as part of the Tartan Asia Extreme DVD series. Uh, and I would have watched it then as like a teenager. And I was certainly affected by it. It is affecting. If anyone's never seen Audition, unfortunately the poster kind of gives away the game a little bit. But if you've never seen the film, um, it's about a widower in Japan who is, I guess he works in the film industry or at least his friend does. He's clearly a wealthy guy. He has a young teenage son and his teenage son encourages him to remarry after his wife has died a few years later. And he's kind of like, oh, like I'm in, like I'm older now. I'm in my like, what, 40s or 50s. He's kind of like, I, you know, how does one do this? So his friend... Um, who's played by Jun Kunamura, by the way, who pops up in The Wailing, an excellent film that I recommended previously on this one. He's also in Kill Bill Volume 1 for a split second, I believe. Lucy Liu cuts his head off pretty quick. Um, he basically is like, he's a film producer, and he's like, let's just hold auditions for a film that we won't make, and we'll, you know, cast it for a leading lady, and you can pick her from there. So the guy, they do this process, and it is very kind of like, well, this is very questionable, isn't it? Um... And through it, you know, our hero, so to speak, meets a woman, a young woman, falls for her, and she is very much not what she seems. And if you know anything about Audition, you probably know where it's going. All of the marketing material kind of spoils the show, so to speak, but I think it's a superior horror. I think it builds incredibly well. The tension is, like, absolutely fucking vice grip-like throughout. In terms of jump scares, this film has, like, one, maybe two, and they are two of the best you'll ever encounter. There's a couple of moments where I was squirming in my chair despite knowing what was going to happen, and then you get to that ending, and you squirm some more. Yeah, um, I haven't watched this in, like, 15 years, and again, I think I need another 15 years before I go back to it, but just on jump scares, I think, if if I'm uh, thinking of it right, it has one of my favourite kind of shots in in horror like for horror movies i love a big you know a big kind of wide shot where 
it's not immediately evident that something is really, really wrong in the frame. Uh, like when, when movies can do that, uh, I'm like, I'm thinking like recently or not that too recently, like I rewatched the, the, the sequel to the strangers last night and the original strangers has a great one of that where, you know, you have a kind of a, a kind of a close up in the bottom right hand corner of the screen of Liv Tyler. And then just, just slowly the focus is on her, but just out of focus in the background, like something happens. Uh, audition has an all timer of it. And it's kind of, I, I think it's when you're like, Oh, there's something happening here again. Like, um, if you, if you saw it back in the day, you probably bought the DVD and yeah, as you said, like they kind of, they kind of give it away. But if you just kind of happen to be watching this, you're like, oh, this is kind of an interesting film, but a lonely man in his, uh, his middle ages. And oh, he seems to have found like this kind of, is, is it kind of a, a fair to say, like a kind of a manic pixie dream girl almost to start with? And then it just completely uh, turns on its head. But that scene I'm thinking of is just like, yeah, your gut, you feel it immediately. <laughs> Uh, real quick uh, on the subject of The Strangers too, Pray at Night which I don't think either of us very much enjoyed but was both on our list this uh, this month in this let's try and watch 31 horror movies um, did you at least like the Bonnie Tyler bit I thought that bit was fun no because I think that the the trope of having 80s pop songs playing while someone is being murdered stopped being kind of edgy or transgressive in the 1980s and it, it, it at, by that stage I think there had already been two, maybe three, two, at least two deaths where you're getting this and like, it's like, oh, so every, every death has a, has an eighties pop song classic. And yeah, um, the, the, this one particularly, like it wears its influences on a sleeve, like a little too much. Like it's, you know, I like John Carpenter. I like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I like Dario Argento, but you know, I don't, I don't need this kind of very, you know, sellotape together version of it. Um, particularly when the last one was like quite an effective and very, very unsettling home invasion movie. This one just kind of veers into making it, you know, we're getting into Jason territory and just in terms of like, oh, these people are borderline superhuman. And also the, the behavior of the people in this movie of the, of the victims, um, it like, it's, it's alarming, you know, when you've watched a lot of horror movies and it's 2020 for people to be acting this stupidly, um, you know, when there's terror outside is, uh, it's too much. That's fair. Okay. Uh, lastly on my list for now in terms of highlights, I went back to a film that has traumatized me for 21 long years, The Blair Witch Project. Now I've seen it, bef- I've seen it in the cinema and I want to talk about that in a moment. I have seen it since. But this is a film that just strikes terror into me. Even its name freaks me out. Uh, if it's one in the morning and I can't sleep and I think about the Blair Witch Project, specifically the ending and other bits too, I'm just fucked. I need to put on like a podcast. Maybe I'll open my curtains. I am, in fact, a man in my mid-30s and I still feel this way. I understand that for an awful lot of people, this film is boring and not scary and just annoying. But for me, I think it is a horror classic. I think it's an easy five stars. I think it's iconic in the best possible way. Before I tell my harrowing story of seeing it in 1999, what is your quick take on the movie? Um, I, again, haven't revisited since I first saw it, but I didn't see it in the cinema. So by the time that I got to it, all the kind of the mystique about it uh, had been kind of that that bubble had been popped for me. So while I probably found it like like you're saying, like maybe a little boring. I, there's obviously some very affecting things in it. Again, like it's got an iconic shot that 
you kind of you you that wouldn't work unless you do all the groundwork of kind of building up to that um so yeah i actually i I should revisit it um because it's been too long but um no no harrowing cinematic experience for me unlike a young david william hanrady in in drada was it it was, yeah. Did it was you come Drada, to the big so, smoke for it? <laughs> no, no, it was Drada. Um, and like, okay, so story time. Essentially, right, this is like 1999, the best pop culture year ever, as we know. And I was fully entrenched in the mythos of this movie before it came out. So this was the time when it would take six months or so for a film to come from America to come to Ireland, you know, quaint times indeed. And you would rely on word of mouth. You'd rely on reading Empire Magazine, Total Film. You'd rely on watching Film 99 with Barry Norman and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, of all things, a young Heat magazine, before it went full horrible, they used to do some entertainment stuff, or at least operate on the pretense thereof, and I very specifically remember like a four-page spread in the magazine, complete with a lot of photographs about the about the movie. So, And also there was the website, which is still active today, like the Space Jam website, which was like, you know, uh, uh, the first, you know, one of the first popular examples of viral marketing and a very, very effective one. Of course, this is the film in which, you know, it's found footage. It didn't give birth to the genre, but it certainly ushered in a wave of terrible films. And, you know, the story at the time was three filmmakers, college filmmakers had like gone, gotten lost in the woods in Burkittsville, Maryland. And their footage was found. And of course, I mean, even if you stay to the end credits, it does say everyone in this film is fictional. Like, like, it, like it's, it's there as well. But people, especially people in America, believed it. And the filmmakers were more than happy to go along with that perception because they were like, well, of course, this is going to sell tickets. Um, the point is, my brother was in America at the time when it came out and he saw it and I remember him ringing home and talking about it and he was like it's fucking really scary like when I got out of the cinema I was in front of these woods which didn't make me feel any better and yeah it'll be out in Ireland in like October or something we gotta go when I'm home so smash cut to then or whatever whenever it came out I think it was around Halloween and it comes out it's playing in the local cinema it's in like the small screen of a small cinema as it is and myself my brother and my sister um, there's like a 10 year age gap between me and my sister I was like 15 so she was 25 my brother was 23 we all went to see it together on like a Sunday evening at like 6 or 7 so it wasn't even that late we went down and we go see it and we're in like this small cramped little cinema probably like about 50 people in it and you know I think most people aren't really vibing with it I think it's I'm like I'm interested I'm also I'm 15 so I think I'm I think I know everything about film I'm really pretentious I've been reading Empire Magazine since I was a kid I'm a real fucking cinephile you know and I, or at least I think I am so we're watching the movie and I'm enjoying it but I'm not terribly scared by it um, my sister however about halfway through is kind of like not comfortable she's not having a good time and at, at one stage she kind of says to my brother she was like I'm just not really enjoying this and he convinced her to stick with it you know um, he was like it's not a very long film and it isn't it's like 85 minutes or less and as the film wore on my sister's getting more and more stressed out and towards the end of the film right around the time that they stumble upon the house um, my sister was like I'm I'm leaving. I can't handle this anymore. And my brother, I guess, in a sadistic mode, was like, "No, no, no! This is the end of the film. Like, you have to stay. It's it's over now in like less than five minutes, which is true." And so she's like, "Fine, fine," and she stayed. And then the film ends, and it has that ending, and there's just silence because there's no fucking music over the end credits. Just like an eerie kind of hum, very droney thing. And everyone leaves the cinema and you can tell like most people are just like, what was that? You know, like what was all the fuss about? So we walk outside the cinema and my sister, she'll never listen to this. So I can tell the story. It's fine. My sister bursts out crying like she is in hysterics. She is freaked the fuck out. I've never seen her like this. 
And I'm like bemused. I'm like, Jesus. And then, you know, we walk home together. We're only like a five minute walk or so home. So it's grand. We get home and she's just not pleased. And I go off and I like fucking play my PC or whatever I was doing at the time. Night rolls on. My sister goes to bed early. Um, my parents have gone to bed. My brother's inside watching like fucking Caligula on like BBC Two or something, which I have to assume was a censored version. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm inside in the fucking other room playing my PC, playing like what, football manager, championship manager, whatever's happening. And I'm totally fine. I'm not even feeling it. I think I'm listening to like the FM 104 phone show, you know, back in those days, my real questionable rituals that I was into as a teenager. Anyway, my brother shows up and is like, I'm going to bed. And him, he and I shared a room together. And at that moment, that's when the chill hit me. And I was like, uh, yeah, 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 me too, man. Because I was like, I don't want to be the last one up. This is not where, where I want to be. And just at that moment, it kind of crept in and I just started to feel it. I started to feel the film's effect on me. So we go upstairs and we're watching fucking, I think you'll enjoy this. We're watching Wolf starring Jack Nicholson on like Channel 4 at like one in the morning. Terrible film. What a triple and bill your brother had. Let me tell you. Oh, what a night. Um, so I'm watching that and I'm feeling kind of uneasy, but I'm distracted by this bad movie. Uh, James Spader milling around. And then all of a sudden our bedroom door fucking bursts open and standing in the doorway silhouetted is a woman and it's my sister and she's crying again and she's like i can't sleep and i'm just like freaked out by what's happening freaked out by the whole thing there's a tension and she's like i can't sleep i can't sleep and my brother's just like what, what's wrong and she's like it's the film I, I can't sleep in my room on my own i need you to come and sleep in the same room as me and my brother's like what like what no and then she's like i'm serious so he's like fine and goes to get out of his bed and at that point i'm like nope 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 he's not going He's not, he's not going anywhere. I, like, no way. And so the compromise was, I got out of my bed. My sister took my bed. I slept on the floor. All three of us, combined age of, like, what, fucking... I want to say, like, 65 or something or there or thereabouts. Um, slept in the same room. Um, I got maybe an hour of sleep. As soon as it got bright, I got up and just, like, went about my day. And ever since, that film has haunted my brain and will continue to. And I was genuinely, when I rewatched it there the other day, that last kind of 10 minutes or so, I'm in here and I waited until it was nighttime. I didn't want to watch it during the day, you know, didn't fucking take the easy option. And I'm sitting here and I'm fucking, I'm looking over my shoulder. I'm shaking. I'm fucking freaked all the way out. And I did not sleep well that night either. So there we go. Thank you, Blair Witch Project. So I'm taking it that since the, the release of the Blair Rich Project, there was never a, a Hanratty family camping trip? No, there hasn't been, and there won't be. Um, Have you ever camped so it, outside of a music festival? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> no. Will you ever? No, I don't think so. But I did go for a long walk in the Phoenix Park the day afterwards, though, to confront my fears. And thankfully, I didn't get lost in some kind of weird time loop. But yeah, um, spooky season. It has been spooky. And one film that we also watched, of course, was The Crow from 1994, which sounds a bit like this. There is a legend that a crow can carry a soul back from the dead to seek justice and put the wrong things right. To move your death. I'm dead. And I move. Brandon Lee. It's not a good day to be a bad guy. The Crow, rated R. 
That's The Crow, a very, very famous film. Uh, I feel like it needs no introduction, but it probably should have some form of introduction. So David Higgins, despite this being my selection, I encourage you to take it away. Um, the Crow, uh, 1993, directed by Alex Proyas, who um, was his, his US debut feature. He'd been a, a music video director and worked with like Excess and Yes and Joe Jackson, all the, all the big music videos of the of the eighties. Clearly, um, it's based on the graphic novel by James O'Barr. Um, he wrote it after. His fiance was killed by a drunk driver and he went into a pretty bad spiral of depression and drinking. He said that he kind of he used the anger at the time and kind of the, you know, the the want for revenge and kind of like funneled it into the crow. Um, he was heavily influenced kind of in the 80s by Joy Division, um, the character itself. He kind of he also took from music, uh, you know, from a, a muscular shape of like a kind of a lean Iggy Pop, uh, the face of Peter Murphy of Bauhaus. Um, so yeah, it's it's a very 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 influential comic. It's a probably more influential graphic novel uh, in terms of its uh, its look and you know kind of launched a thousand Halloween costumes and was. Um, Sadly, the last movie for its star, Brandon Lee, it would have been, you would imagine, his his breakout role. He'd been in a, in a couple of movies before, but was tragically killed in an accident on set. Um, that kind of oh, doesn't fully overshadow the movie, but it's kind of, it's hard not to talk about it, uh, to talk about it without kind of making reference to it. And um, for some people, maybe, unfortunately, it's kind of the thing that is the talking point of The Crow, but a very influential film uh, that would go on to kind of um in you know uh invoke a kind of like a lot of the looks that came later like even something like the matrix um owes a lot to it and dark city which is what Proyas followed it up with and a lot of a lot of kind of like late 90s early 2000s action um it probably you know was the thing that started the kind of early 2000s new metal revolution soundtrack um lots of big hitters on this soundtrack as well um better than the the new metal ones but um yeah that's that's kind of the 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 kind of the jump off point with it as for the plot of the film it centers around a doomed young couple named uh, eric draven and shelly webster who are murdered in their loft in you know this very gothic part of town uh they're basically like henchmen arrive to evict them Poor Shelley, who's not much of a character, and we can talk about that, uh, gets beaten and raped. And the film isn't too gratuitous with what it, what it shows you, but it certainly tells you, which is kind of like, mm, I mean, do we need that detail? I don't know. But again, it was the style of the time, I suppose. Uh, Eric comes home, gets a knife in his chest for the troubles, and then gets shot dead, thrown out of a window. So they're murdered. They're murdered by a gang who seems to operate with impunity around the town. Uh, they work for a gravel-voiced uh, boss by the name of Top Dollar, played by Michael Wincott. He might have seen films here and there. He hasn't had much of a huge career, but he tends to leave an impression because he sounds fucking amazing. Uh, and in this film, you know, his character is absolutely outlandishly ridiculous. I believe in the comic, he's not like, he's just another henchman, but for some reason he got bumped up to Top Dollar status on this one. Anyway, um, so the title will tell us a crow, a mystical crow, I guess. Uh, somebody manages to bring Eric back to life. 
he immediately decides I'll be a vigilante now and get revenge. I think he only has one night to do it or something. I will say in terms of like plot economy, inside 15 minutes, he's the fucking crow. If you want to refer to him as the crow. I mean, like that's one of the things where it's like, is he the crow? Like, do you call him this or is that like a misconception? It's more that he's just called Eric. Even like in the film, his surname is Draven, D. Raven. And that's like a, that's a makeup for the film. It's not in the comic. Plus also in this movie, like, it's not a crow at all, is it? It is a raven, like, that that he has around with him, but it's meant to be a crow. So there's all kinds of, like, oh, I don't know. And I assume that's just, like, well, we couldn't train crows, could we? But we can do a raven. But um, it's a kind of a straightforward enough, you know, revenge movie. Um, he adopts this mantle, this very theatrical figure, works his way one by one until he gets to the top boss, takes him down, gets revenge, sleeps well, and that's pretty much it. And it's all kind of, it's all it kind of really needed to be. It's like an hour 40, very of its time, very influential for both good and bad reasons. I'd argue that it actually influenced more than that. I, like, I would say that it influenced Christopher Nolan. I'm sure he's seen this movie. Um, you could argue that Heath Ledger's performance isn't a million miles off Brandon Lee's. Of course, that will come with the territory of a tragic death happening to a charismatic actor. But yeah, what do you think? Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Heath Ledger getting something from this character because... Um, I get a lot more Michael Wincott in, in Heath Ledger's Dark Knight, particularly the way it's almost like he's trying to affect, like, as you say, that gravelly tone. But uh, Michael Wincott also has this uh, kind of cadence to speak where he seems to, like, exhale all the time when he delivers lines. Uh, and uh, Ledger's Joker is, like, it's very, very, you know, full of breath when, he, when he's speaking. Um, this, yeah, um, to, to kind of kick off on it, um, you said like this is a very very stylish film. Um, the thing that kind of struck me immediately is like the opening shot. I was like, oh, this person seems to know what they want like visually from this movie. It is very very striking. It is unique. Uh, you have that like opening shot of uh, Detroit. I believe it's supposed to be quite literally on fire. Um, that seems to be the modus operandi of these villains is that they just set fire to things. Um, particularly on the on the 30th of October is when they they really like to ramp it up but you know it it immediately it can't help but evoke blade runner like a gothic blade runner which is you know if you're going to pick a movie that you want your movie to look like you know that's a pretty good uh, jump off point um but yeah it, it is very very striking um the the people that he's working with on this you have uh, Darius Falski is a cinematographer who would go on to be kind of Ridley Scott's guy basically since the kind of, you know, 2005 upwards. And, you know, regardless of, you know, how your mileage varies on Ridley Scott movies, they always look incredibly crisp. Um, and yeah, I think that the way that this is shot, it's like it looks very like the comic. Um, another thing that, you know, unfortunately it probably did influence is something like Sin City in its, you know, very uh, fastidious approach to like black and white. But while that's a digital thing, this is just every bit of color is washed out of this thing to the point that like, you know, I don't know if it was a case of trying to get it under a certain rating, but like even the way people bleed in it, like the, the reds are almost, you know, the reds are almost black. It's a very, very, very stark movie, apart from its kind of flashbacks, which are, you know, maybe to its detriment overtly colorful and you know very kind of mtv-esque uh, editing and you know you know it's it's trying to put a delineation between two different things but um 
yeah, a very, very uh, impressive film. It is quite economic. I don't think it has a lot going on story-wise. As you said, it's kind of, it's almost video game-esque of, you know, you know, continue up the up the ladder, you know, Streets of Rage style until you get to the final boss on top of a church. And, you know, <laughs> that's that. <laughs> very much so, yeah. And as noted, Eric is a rock star. He has a taste for the theatrical. When he comes back from the grave, uh, he immediately goes into full goth mode, which includes him, of course, painting his face like a mime, black lipstick, you know, white makeup over the face and kind of like a couple of slits down the eyes. As you say, it launcheth heads in costumes. It sure did. Um, here's a taste of him in action where he confronts uh, a scuzzy pawn shop owner, played, of course, by scuzzy pawn shop owner extraordinaire actor John Polito. You have one chance to live. Look, man, take anything you want. Thank you. Take anything! Now you're going to tell me where to find the rest of him to this little party pal. Forget they all hang out at the pit. Well, T-Burst, little potato heads hang out there. Fun boy, he lives here upstairs, all right? Fun boy. A whole jolly club. Jolly pirate nickname. Jesus Christ, an attack Hold still. Each one of these is a life. A life you helped destroy. Come back, don't kill me. I'm not going to kill you. Your job will be to tell the rest of them that death is coming for them tonight. Tell them Eric Draven sends his regards. You got a nice, uh, nice guitar sound there as he picks up the electric guitar in the shop. Uh, he, of course, blows the shop to hell. Uh, Gideon, his character, gets away briefly, but doesn't last too long after that. Here's a question for you. Um, I enjoy these early establishing moments of the film. I, like, like, I think Brandon Lee does a good job with it. I, I enjoy the kind of, you know, go from boss to boss structure thing. I think it works. Does the film almost move a bit too fast in that regard? I mean, like, I often find myself being like, it wouldn't be better if, like, you know, we didn't have to spend half an hour of this, whatever the fuck. But I guess with a film like this where it's very breakneck, I think it kind of runs out of steam pretty fast because he's basically invincible as well, which is a bit of a problem for the character. There's not much here in terms of suspense. Yeah, I mean, th- this is uh, an origin story, I guess. And, you know, being that in the, in the what, 26 odd years since this movie was released... God knows how many uh, origin stories we've seen. You're kind of used to a slower approach where you spend a bit of time, like you said, like he's pretty much the crow within 15 minutes in this thing. And you're kind of used to be like the 40 or the 50 minute mark is is when they become Batman or when they become Spider-Man. You're kind of used to that ebb and flow. And it's it's a it's a different it's a different approach. Um, yeah, um, it, it kind of does it like it, it, it goes along without kind of having any any emotional depth um particularly when you think that like it's it's based on a text that was clearly um you know James O'Barr was like mining something that was like a very very traumatic event for him and the way that that event which you know I agree is is egregious um in in the in the way not only that it's kind of like it's a throwaway and the Shelley character is basically just there to have that happen to her, but the way that it kind of is just intercut every ten minutes where you know you keep getting a flashback to it and it's like every time he he gets to the next um he gets to the next, you know, 
character on that he needs to kill, you get a reminder. Oh yeah, but they, and they did this as well. It's like we know what they all did. Um, I do wonder if they'd spent a little bit more time with the two of them together and kind of established just like how you know essentially his love for her meant that he literally couldn't die and then he had to come back and avenge her um rather than these kind of like you know you're getting choppy moments of romance like me cutes of oh you know they're spraying uh silly string on each other or like you know oh she set the kitchen on fire like with a, with a pan cooking god knows what and he knows just to you know put things on top of it to control the fire and like there's there's not enough for them um and as a result, yeah, there's there's no emotional impact. You kind of just feel like you're going through the motions. And while lots of the, the, the action scenes are fun, um, I felt like there could be a lot more depth to it. Yeah, for sure. Let's take a listen to Brandon Lee. This is him confronting his first henchman, because I want to talk about his style, even how he speaks in this movie. And, you know, we can, we, we can be honest, we can t- discuss his acting prowess, whether he was good, whether he was bad, and how he is in this movie. Tell me a story. A man and a woman in lock a year ago. Motherfucking mom. Listen! I'm sure you'll remember. You killed them. On Halloween. Yeah, yeah, man. Okay, Halloween, yeah. Some dude, some bitch, whatever, man. So I really like his cadence. I mean, I've read all kinds of different reactions to Brandon Lee's uh, performance in this movie. Obviously, you know, he was a young actor. He was rising, the son of a legend. It looked like he was on his way. This was supposed to be his big breakout. I mean, prior to this, he'd been in some kind of DTV action stuff or he'd been a sidekick here and there. Uh, Young guy, good looking guy, martial artist, had a lot going for him, very marketable. If this had popped off, you could totally see him having a career, uh, having like a fairly sustainable career. But of course, tragedy struck and that didn't happen. Um, but I've seen some people like venerate him like crazy. They were like, this guy had it all and he was going to be amazing. And I've seen people being like, well, he's a bit wooden. I, I really like him in this movie. I, I honestly really do, even outside of what happened. I think he's very, very commanding. I think he's got a great presence. I think he's got a great look. And even like his line delivery, like that one there in particular, like I was thinking of Heat Ledger and the Joker. Uh, just that kind of strange cadence to it. I think he had a lot of fun with it. Uh, by all accounts, he had a lot of creative control. Headed off really, really well with James Abar as well. Um, I'm not saying we're like we're looking at a fucking future Oscar winner here, but I think he fits this role in then some. Yeah, I mean, um, like as I was saying, like script wise, he doesn't have a lot to deal with. So this movie kind of is is you know make or break on you know his presence, which I think he has an absolute abundance. Um, and he's you know he can go from being like quite charismatic. You know, he's got like some great interplay with uh, Ernie Hudson in this where you know you could see him like you put a sidekick beside him and like he he does have that like he works well as a kind of a leading man in that sense um he very very much handles himself well in like action sequences and there's just like some small things that he does that are like very very kind of unique like i'm thinking of when he eventually gets to top dollars loft and, you know, he's kind of walking into, again, like, keep going back to The Dark Knight, but like a scene where the Joker walks into all like the mob bosses and he's going into like all the, all the kind of the underworld of Detroit and he like pulls the chair back and just like, you know, jumps on the table, but like does like a lotus position just as he lands it. And like, it's obviously like his martial arts background, but like 
it looks so cool and he does it so kind of like nonchalantly that um yeah like I don't think we were going to be seeing him in like great dramas or you know thrillers but like where there's a dearth of you know action stars um you you would have happily you know wanted to see him work with other people after this you know like what would he have been like in a John Woo movie or you know you know just as he was coming over or you know even other franchises like you know you'd want to see him again Definitely, yeah. Um, you mentioned Ernie Hudson there, and Ernie Hudson plays a sergeant who's been kind of busted down to beat cop level, who was present on the night of the murder. Um, he was investigating, but, you know, it's it's your typical, like, you know, stay in your lane, cop. So he, like, you know, is taken off the case. He's kind of just, like, sitting behind a desk. Uh, Ernie Hudson's a reliable actor, I think, for this kind of thing. I think he can just step into the role with ease, and he does. He's a lovable guy. He's clearly a good dude. This is very much a good guy, bad guy movie. Um him and uh, Eric have a very nice scene together, which I'm going to play some of in a second. It's one of the sweeter parts of a movie that's mostly coated deliberately in grime. Uh, but it does also give you another example of the Brandon Lee thing, where I do think that with a little he does have to play with, I think he manages to walk the balance of both this character that is, you know, a supernatural revenant, revenger type thing. But there is a heart there. And even though it's cheesy as hell, I think this kind of really, really works. Why didn't you do something about it? Come on, you think any of those people in that building, even the ones who signed the petition, would talk after what happened to you? I kept asking questions and finally got busted for sticking my nose where it wasn't wanted. This your wife? Yeah, we, uh, well, not anymore. We're getting a divorce. It's funny little things used to mean so much to Shelley. I used to think they were kind of trivial. Believe me, nothing is trivial. You shouldn't smoke these. They'll kill you. Vanishing the thin air again? I thought I'd use your front door. So yeah, it's drenched in, in mozzarella, but I love that. I thought I'd use your front door a bit. I think it's just really nice and it does have that unfortunate three dimension thing of like, oh, it's just, there's something just kind of extra level about that in this movie that is, you know, very of its time, very VHS era, very, you know, young, angry teenage boy. It's just a nice moment in a film that maybe doesn't have enough of those moments. I don't know if it needs them, but it's nice when they pop up. It's done well, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think Ernie Hudson is great in this. I think one of the the, the great um, uh, things that this movie has going for it is that its its cast, and particularly its supporting cast, is rounded out like quite remarkably by just faces that you recognise. It's like a it's kind of like a, a murderer's row of that guy's, you know, we've already mentioned uh, Michael Wincott, mentioned Ernie Hudson uh, and John Polito. But like, you know, if you're if you're going to have, you know, little dimension in the script with your with your with your villains, it kind of helps if you just get some kind of all timer um, actors to play them, you know, like all timer. If you're kind of a fan of horror, a fan of action films and particularly in this movie, like we've had a, a clip of. 
think we've had um Tintin getting killed. I think he's Tintin in this, isn't he? Um who like pops up in hackers, but like you have David Patrick Kelly in this movie. Um one of <laughs> the all time dirtbags. I think he might be the greatest uh dirtbag uh, for anyone who doesn't know him if you've watched uh Twin Peaks, he's Jerry Horn. Is he Jerry Horn in, in yeah, it's Jerry, isn't it? Yeah, he's the brother, yeah. 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 Um he is in commando, he has you know, an all-time death in Commando. You said to kill me last, Matrix! <laughs> and he, of course, is in The Warriors, um, has its biggest line. He's just he's just a, an amazing uh, character actor, I think. And he's like, he's so good at being grimy and sleazy. I, I kind of wonder, I'm like, is he really, really short? Or am I just like thinking of him in, in comparison to Schwarzenegger? But he's got like the energy of kind of like a short skeezy guy who's like particularly like onerous around women, which he is in this as well. Um, he's absolutely fantastic. Uh, we also have Tony Todd in this. I think this is some of the best use of Tony Todd I think I've seen because Tony Todd, uh, for anyone who's seen Candyman, that is Tony Todd. That's kind of, what I think of when I think of Tony Todd or, you know, he pops up as kind of like a mortician in Final Destination. He's always kind of creepy. He's never, you know, well-dressed with like a good haircut and just like immensely cool Tony Todd, um, which he is in this film. And yeah, like they bring, bring so much uh, to this. Yeah. And even like when you meet the henchmen, they're kind of, they get this scene where they're at a bar and they're all like, doing shots and they're swallowing bullets like and it's kind of like it's ridiculous it's stupid it's probably straight out of the comic book i haven't read the comic book but like like i prefer that you know like give me even like three minutes with these guys as opposed to faceless henchman number one faceless henchman number two you mentioned like lawrence mason who plays tintin he's just got a great presence he's got a great face he's got a great voice he's got a great manner about him like anytime he pops up in anything you're drawn to him you know uh, michael massey who plays fun boy who passed away unfortunately recently um you know he he like everyone looks a certain way sounds a certain way um they don't last terribly long which i guess is 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 refreshing in one sense because it's like these are nothing to the crow they're nothing to like you know someone who's capable even though they terrorize an entire city um it doesn't like i say it it takes spence out of it fairly quickly because they don't stand a chance but maybe that's the point uh well sure we'll play one more will we here's uh here's draven toying with fun boy before inevitably putting him down Stop me if you heard this one. Jesus Christ walks into a hotel. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> he hands the innkeeper three nails and he asks, Don't you ever fucking die? You put me up for the night? <laughs> Does that hurt? <laughs> Did you enjoy that Jesus Christ gag, or do you think the film was laying it on a bit thick there? A little, a little thick. Um, <laughs> in 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 the scene that follows here, does does uh, does Eric Draven cure a woman's morphine addiction by literally just squeezing it out of her arm? Yes, he does, and he has a bizarre line where he's like, "Mother is the face for God, or, or Mother is the name for God on the lips of all children." And it's like, okay, what? Like, how deep does this character go? Like, why are you all of a sudden? 
you know, like a poet now. Well, I guess he's a rock star in what looks like a terrible band, by the way. <laughs> like, Hangman's you know, joke. So, Hangman's joke. Yeah, they s- seem to be like some kind of like Alice in Chains knockoff or whatever. Um, there's also a young girl in this movie, Shelley, who's the daughter of that aforementioned uh, woman who was with Fun Boy. Um, is he, she's another analog, I suppose, to him. But again, I think the relationship isn't really fully fleshed out. Um, I don't know. I mean, okay, it's time to ask the the basic question here because this is a film with a huge cult following, a film with a big legacy. Is it a good film? It's it's for me. It's teetering right on the edge. Um, there's lots to admire about it. Um, like we kind of talked about, like visually, it is a very very good looking film and. You know, we we we're kind of living in the age of superhero films, just kind of like looking very very uniform, where they're all filmed on the same stage and they're all kind of they all have the same VFX team. So, you know, going in with an idea of how you want a movie to look and like making some choices, and even if your kind of influences are like very kind of perhaps obvious, but just it's good to look at. Um, it's. It's suitably um, kind of lived in, like the Detroit that they create. You know, it's perpetual nighttime, always raining. Yeah, fair enough. But like the the grime of it is very, very good. There's some like great choices as well as the cast. Just like how people are costumed. I think it's, it's does T-Bird have like a cigarette through his ear? Like something like that is just like, it's such a lovely choice. And, you know, if you're not going to, you know, give time to like develop characters, like having something like that, where I just feel like it says a lot about him <laughs> by the fact that he has it. And he's also, you know, eating bullets while uh, chasing whiskey. Um, but aside from that, I was like, perhaps like a little let down by the action scenes. Like some of them are, are, are good. I think the, the bigger ones are a bit like, you know, they don't really hit home. I don't, maybe we're just kind of like spoiled having years of watching great action, but like, you know, you'd like to see a little bit more, particularly how good uh, Brandon Lee was. And, you know, you, you have someone like that that you get to use and it's kind of like, oh, he's just kind of gunning people down. Like there's there's not a lot of creativity. Um, I think it also speaks to the fact that I, I literally had no idea what the crow's powers were. They seem to kind of vary from scene to scene where I guess he's invulnerable, but... Also, he seems to, on occasion, feel pain when he's being shot. But when he was, you know, being having multiple clips being unloaded into him, it just seemed to be hilarious. He seems to have heightened reflexes, but he's also like a martial artist. Like it, it kind of, yeah. The story's all over the place, um, and as a result, it's kind of like hard to love, but you know, admirable. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there's a sequence there in the boardroom um, when he does his fucking CM Punk sit down thing, and like it's funny because like one like this is your classic like fucking <laughs> like Two Face uh, assembling all the gangs of Gotham for a meeting or something where it's like all these guys are ridiculous looking, they're all wearing black. There's one guy in particular who's wearing a beret sunglasses, sleeveless fucking t-shirt, and is carrying an Uzi like holding it aloft like it's a trophy he's the first guy to go over and check on him when they gun him down and of course he's the first one to go but like again you mentioned Streets of Rage earlier these are Streets of Rage characters like that's all they are and that whole sequence which is set to a hilarious song by a band called I think it's called um, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult and 
it's very like it's just real like kind of like techno rock very matrix you know would follow on like a few years later with some of the stuff in that movie and yeah that whole sequence is just very very like kind of low budget looking and not much happens and it's hard to follow and it's just kind of boring like i mean ultimately the film i think the problem with the film is i think it runs out of steam i think it's your classic game of two halves i love the first 45 minutes of this movie or so i think it you know it moves so fast he's the crow before you know it those individual kind of encounter scenes are great and then it's kind of like oh okay what, what happens next i mean like it's just a bit rote and the second half of the movie they tried to interview or they tried to introduce rather like some of the more mystical elements but don't really do it that well and then it just becomes a bit fruitless it becomes a bit monotonous it becomes a bit joyless and by the end of it it's just kind of like yeah cool i'm ready for this to end now like it's no failure but it is very much like your first half is so much stronger than your second there's just not really much of a second or a third act and i know i have i've I've criticized it's um it's it's action sequences but i feel like a staple of this show is that uh, i'd be remiss if i didn't say that this does have some top quality corpse kills here we go beginning i suppose you could argue with eric draven himself stabbed shot thrown from six stories it looks it was six is it yeah i thought it might yeah. have been higher so you know you're getting your 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 hero himself has been corpse killed, so you know you're in good hands with this movie. <laughs> I want to I want to go back to like John Polito gets corpse killed in this film. John Polito gets a very harsh time. Like it was one of the things that I was like when they when he goes and that scene we heard earlier where he you know he blows a Polito shop. He he stabs him through the hand and he's kind of essentially torturing him psychologically, physically, um, and being like, oh, you know, I'm going to let you off so you can go and tell the others, but. You know, when that explosion goes off, that's like a city block explosion <laughs> in the in the, in the in the pawn shop. And it's like, Polito doesn't look like, you know, he's out of the gates going to like sprint out of there. You know, he's he's been very badly wounded. But he wounded. does. You just, he somehow manages to make... Wall. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't think so. <laughs> like, uh, exactly, yeah. Only for him later to get a sword through his neck and then get like a, a whole magazine from a semi-automatic emptied into him. It's like... By good. top dollar. By yeah. top dollar, good God! I think um, David Patrick <laughs> Kelly gets it like utterly spectacularly in this movie. He uh, there's like a there's a chase sequence in it again. Like it's it's a pretty poor chase sequence, you know. Even to um, going down to like the supporting kind of like uh, there's a scene with like you know cops, you know like the, your classic cops like sitting by drinking hot coffee and cars go speed by and they're like, oh my God, what's going on? the cop spills coffee on himself and like this guy oversells it like he had like a vat of acid just dropped on him he's like oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway uh draven catches up with um t-bird some out, out of nowhere you know he's he's in his car he's kind of like incapacitated he like ties did oh he he duct tapes him to it by his head uh, puts an incendiary grenade on him, which is like, you know, or, or like a high phosphorus <laughs> grenade, which, you know, you put that on someone's lap, immediate melting heat death. Um, I don't know if he puts a brick or he puts something to like, you know. He has, no, hang on. He has an elaborate pulley system, like fucking a trap from Saw. It's like, what the hell is going on in this car? So, he, he, he yeah, he sets that up um, and then... David Patrick Kelly T-Bird is like melting as he's like <laughs> driven off just before the car goes off the pier. It explodes, you know, you know, <laughs> clearly 
blowing parts of him away while the rest of it is like melded to the like the seat and then he gets uh, tossed into you know the Detroit River which you know high industrial town uh, this movie doesn't paint a very nice image of Detroit much like Robocop so you would imagine it's not the most pleasant of rivers uh, you know <laughs> to die in but you know that's an A plus corpse kill for me <laughs> were you just delighted with all these corpse kills that one particularly of this show. That one particularly because, as I said, like David Patrick Kelly is like he gets killed really well in movies, and he's <laughs> always like you're always satisfied to see him die. Like I, you know, I, I don't ever want to see him actually die because I think he's a wonderful actor. I'm sure he's very very nice, but he he's just such a um, he's so easy to root against, and you know, very much in this movie. So that was that was my probably the highlight for me. I think uh, I think you could argue Top Dollar gets a corpse kill as well. Um, before we explain how he goes out, because I can't do this episode without getting some of Michael Wincott's voice into it, here's Top Dollar speechifying to uh, Eric Draven seconds before his death. You know, my daddy used to say, every man's got a devil, and you can't rest till you find him. What happened back there with you and your girlfriend... I cleared that building. Hell, nothing in this town happens without my say-so. So I'm sorry if I spoiled your wedding plans there, friend. But if it's any consolation to you, you have put a smile on my face. You got a lot of spirit, son. I am going to miss you. Like, seriously, one of the great voices in the game, but what an idiot of a character. Why are you telling the crow that you were involved? He didn't even fucking know. He's like, yeah, by the way, that whole thing that happened to you, I I signed the order on that one, just so you know. And then Eric Draven just immediately kills him by uh, transferring 30 hours of pain. I should explain this. Earlier on when he was talking to Ernie Hudson in his apartment, he puts his hands on Ernie Hudson's temples and through him, like, sees his uh, fiance dying because Ernie Hudson spent 30 hours in the hospital watching over her and he's imbued with the pain of that so he takes that pain and transfers it to the consciousness of Top Dollar through the same maneuver putting his hands on him Top Dollar rides for a bit and then is immediately flung off the top of this church so he's so he's been given 30 hours of pain, which I assume is killing him instantly. Then he's thrown off the fucking church roof, and then he is impaled on a Batman-style gargoyle, which goes through his fucking neck and mouth, and also, like, stomach. Red blood flowing through the mouth of the gargoyle. That's a corpse kill, right? Surely it has to be. Yeah, um, I'm, I've done the check on it, and yes, it is, in fact, a, a corpse kill. We didn't mention... Var check, yeah. We didn't, uh, we didn't mention... So... You know, if you haven't seen this movie, we're talking about a character called Top Dollar, and you might have an idea in your head of what a character like Top Dollar looks like. <laughs> but his look in this movie is absolutely bonkers. Like, you know, this is a very, you know, stylized movie, and everyone kind of has a look. His look in this basically seems like he just stole from wardrobe uh, from Interview with the Vampire, including the wig. It looks like he took Pitt's wig. It's. <laughs> it's such a it's such a choice. I like there's there's some there's some scenes in where it's like oh he's is he Dracula in this again like you know you were saying that I think Top Dollar is like low level henchman in in the graphic novel he was elevated in this very 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 bold choice um, but I'm on board with it. Well, when he shows up at the end to confront Eric Draven, he's dressed like a fucking pirate. 
he's got like a white shirt on and a, a sword around his back and has spurs. And I'm like, what are you supposed to be, mate? I don't know. I mean, like Michael Wincott is a delight, but it's a strange character. I guess the less said about poor Bai Ling, the better. Um, this, you know, mysterious oriental witchcraft woman. It's like, I don't know, movie. Um, but yeah, it's a strange movie. It was received quite well. Um, it has an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes at the moment. Most people seem to like it. It has a huge legacy. Do you think that, like, it's kind of regarded? I mean, like, do you think that, like, it, it deserves its reputation? As a as a superhero movie, as a, as a comic book movie, I guess when it was, like, released, you're looking at the only comic book movies existing, you know, bar, like, the early Donner Supermans are, like, the Burton Batmans and... Um, something I mentioned last time, Dick Tracy, Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy, everybody go watch it. Um, so in that sense, like, you know, an, another movie that I think maybe that it had a big influence on was Blade, which, you know, I loved. Um, so it, it definitely did something different and it, it does something that, m- you know, most superhero comic book movies don't do these days. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel like if it, if it wasn't just for the, 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 the dress upness of the crow and people, you know, for for thousands of disenfranchised young males, it was just like the go to at Halloween that maybe it wouldn't have lived on forever because it hasn't it doesn't really have much cultural cachet after this. Like it has a couple of sequels, it has a it had a TV show, um and it's been talked about being remade, I think, with Jason Momoa, but that doesn't seem to have happened because I don't know if the desire for it is there. Um but yeah, as you say, it was was very well reviewed. Um, didn't win big at the awards. It was up for a couple of the big ones, the uh, MTV Movie Awards. Oh my god, really? Like best fight and that kind of stuff, was it? Most charismatic uh, entrance. Uh, best movie, I'll have you know. It lost to Pulp Fiction, Speed, Interview with the Vampire, and Forrest Gump. Uh, Brandon Lee was up for Best Male. Sadly, did not win. Uh, it lost to Brad Pitt. Um, it did win for best song, Stone Temple Pilots, Big Empty, which is probably the best song in the soundtrack. I know you're going to say it's Dead Cells, but it's not. Uh, no, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to say that it's the best song in the soundtrack, and we can talk about the soundtrack. The best song in the soundtrack is this.
That's Burn by The Cure, a song that they wrote for the film, and I believe didn't play live until about maybe five or six years ago. So, like, they gave it a good while before they ever aired it live. Great song. I love that scene. That is, you know, his birth scene, I suppose, when he puts on the makeup. And it's, you know, it's it's iconic, man. <laughs> I think this film is well-remembered from people who saw it at the time, myself included. I think it has a certain kind of goodwill with that regard. Soundtrack-wise, what do you think of it? Um, for the most part, pretty bad. Um, so it's kind of, there's a lot of covers on it. Like, um, as I mentioned, uh, Dead Cells, there's Pantera do a cover. Not great. Um, the Rage Against the Machine song, um, Darkness, is maybe one of the worst things I've heard them ever do. Um, <laughs> and it, like it really it really jars in this movie that's you know about a avenging superhero that like you know lyrically it's about like AIDS and that immediately you're like okay on this you know kind of very throwaway super gothic superhero movie um, has a utterly dreadful kind of noodling uh, Tom Morello kind of almost like loungy guitar solo it's really terrible. Uh, who else is on it? Violent Femmes, um, a band I think when you're in college you think that you like, but then you realise they're not very good. Uh, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good summation. Well, hang on, hang on. If you're going to throw a Rage Against Machine under the bus like this, the song is called Darkness. For anyone who hasn't heard it, let's take a little taste. And a vaccine is still supposedly under preparation. But these governments, they don't mind the procrastination. They say we'll kill them off. like some kind of like a Sonic the Hedgehog game or something where he goes underwater I don't know what, I don't even know what the hell he was trying for yeah um, like I, I guess like movies that had like a hard rock in, in the 90s it was kind of like a staple to have a rage song but yeah definitely not their finest moment and um, I don't think this plays over any of the credits or anything and it's not featured in the movie so you know perhaps for the best um, yeah I do like the Stone Temple Pilot song there's like Machines of Loving Grace who kind of seem like a Nine Inch Nails parody. Um, yeah, it's very of its time, um, you know, but yeah, doesn't doesn't fully do it for me. Is there anything that you like on it? Uh, mostly the Dead Souls cover, Burn. Um, that Thrill Kill Cult song is kind of fun. The Stone Town Pilot song is good, in fairness. Um, and I, I, I really don't enjoy the... It Can't Rain All The Time song that was written for the film and sang over the end credits, which is just like really cheesy and like, what the fuck? It doesn't work at all. Again, I think that the soundtrack is is held up there as like a go-to. People are just always like, oh yeah, the Crow soundtrack was amazing, wasn't it? And it's like, nah, it's a bit of fun. The whole movie's a bit of fun. The whole thing is very much off its time. Uh, I have a quiz for you, but before we get to the quiz, I know you want to talk about the director of this film, Alex Proyas. Whatever happened to this man, this this critic-loving human being, well received everything every project he makes you know the Midas touch tell us a bit more about this guy 
Yeah, he's 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 interesting because he did seem like uh, you know, um, depending on you know, regardless of your opinion on this movie, after like Dark City, it's like, oh, this guy's a, a you know, he's a very very strong visual style and kind of coming into the two thousands, you know, his his projects only kind of seem to be getting bigger, and he's only made three movies in the last fifteen years, or so. It all kind of started to go wrong with uh, I Robot. And this is the big Will Smith uh, sci-fi from 2004 um, based on the Isaac Asimov. Um, you know, I think it's like, I'm not sure if it was a novel. This movie, its its only cultural impact, I think, is the fact that it is the probably the most egregious uh, product placement that's ever been committed to celluloid. You know, like straight off the bat, there's a scene where like, you know, <laughs> Will Smith basically does a Converse commercial. 2004 uh, you know, Converse, straight out of the box. It's unbelievable. And like the, the first robot that you meet is like, a, I think it's FedEx. And it's like, you know, all the colors. It's like an... I, I, I definitely saw it, but like I can't remember anything, you know, outside of the the product placements in it. After that, he made Knowing, which is, you know, one of the very forgettable Nicolas Cage movies of the of the late two thousands. Of which, in fairness, there are many. And then, kind of his last thing that he made is Gods of Egypt. Um, so Alex Preuss, his parents are Egyptian, so. Um, this movie is basically famous for it being one of the most hilarious examples of whitewashing that maybe has ever existed in cinema. Um, you know, you have your two leads, um, Scandinavian <laughs> Nikolai Kostrovaldo, and then, of course, Jared Butler playing uh, the Egyptian god of the desert. I watch this. This this is like unwatchably terrible. Like it's. I don't know how there was so much money spent on this movie. It looks dreadful. Um, you know, even going beyond like, you know, the the whitewashing that's going on, just like so terribly cast. Um, this famously, you know, got absolutely destroyed. Uh, Proyas then like fired back and kind of basically like did the digging in that lots of directors like to do when movies don't go well. Um, where they say, you know, well, this one was just for the fans, except in this case, there were no fans. So all <laughs> that he had to do was basically called all critics diseased vultures. Um, doesn't seem to have anything on the slate going forward, but um, we can yeah, hope. be interesting. You know? <laughs> we can hope. Maybe he has something, something in him. I went to see Gods of Egypt at a press screening and I remember on the way in because it, it had already built a notorious buzz. Everyone knew how bad it was going to be. I remember on the way in, the guy in front of me asked the PR lady. He was like, ah, like, is it really bad? And she like kind of like looked to the side and then she went, guilty pleasure. And that was better acting than anything in that film, to be fair. <laughs> it's a dreadful film. There is one great bit at the start, though, where Nikolai Kostrovaldo is given some like ceremonial trumpet thing, and he turns to the side excitedly and plays it like fucking Clarence Clemens. And that's as high camp as it gets. I mean, it is, it's high camp from start to finish, but Jesus Christ, is it ever a mess. Um, okay, it's time for my, my quiz. I'm going to quiz you. We haven't had a quiz here for a while. I put together a crow quiz. Now, I anticipated that some of the answers might come up in conversation, and some of them have. So I have taken the liberty of putting a couple of bonus questions in. I'm still going to give you the ones that you already know, that I know that you know. I'm going to give you 12 questions about the crow. Are you ready? This is... I, I don't think you've ever quizzed me on this. Have you? Is this I the first I, time? I think I did it once. I think I, I, think I did it once, but uh, certainly not to, to this 
extent, although I didn't spend a lot of time on this one. I still think it's good, though. Let's find out. Question one. Name Eric Draven's band. Uh, it's Hangman's Joke. That is correct. Alongside Mo Devious, Gunnar Lance, Tex Fowler, and Brian Harden. They're his bandmates. Number two. Can you name all of Top Dollar's henchmen? Tintin, T-Bird, um, Funboy, Grange, Skank? Correct. Amazing. I don't even think Tony Todd's character Grange gets named Grange in the film, but you got him. Can you name the order that the henchmen are revenged in? Tintin. Yep. Funboy. Correct. T-Bird, Skank, Grange. You got it. Unbelievable. <laughs> three for three so far. I'm very impressed. Number four, and what city is it set in? Uh, Detroit. Number That's correct. So you're four for four. Lawrence Mason, who plays Tintin, played a character named Lord Nikon in what film? Hackers. That's five for five. Number six, Brandon Lee starred opposite which iconic action star in Showdown in Little Tokyo? That would be uh, the great Dolph Lundgren. That is correct, in which uh, Brandon Lee's character, per the script, has to comment on the enormous size of Lundgren's penis um, in, in an awestruck fashion. Number seven, what wrestler famously paid homage to the Crow character? Well, you say homage, I say once uh, in copyright infringement, it would be Sting. <laughs> it would um, be Sting, the man that would be Sting. Uh, so, like, does does pro wrestling exist if the crow wasn't made? I guess, like, that's one of the big legacy things that we kind of didn't really touch on. You have I mean, Sting. W- WCW did You're, die, but... Yeah, but Sting is still stinging, isn't he? He's still stinging. Well, he's, he's mostly, like, an ambassador these days, but... Does Jeff what? Hardy exist without the crow? Uh, good point. Maybe yeah. He, he li- the crow. The crow literally does a swanton bomb in this. He does, which he is amazing. Tintin. Yeah, it's true. Into some garbage, like <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Hardy anyway, saw that was- and was like, "I'm having that." Uh, so you got seven out of seven so far. This is very impressive. Uh, how many films in total are in the franchise? Um, not including like TV movies or TV shows. Not including TV shows. There are four official films. Oh my God, I just gave you the fucking answer. <laughs> huh, okay. Okay, so I know, I know one of them is called City of Angels. Well, is substitute that the one question. Ed- substitute question. Can you tell me all the subtitles? Yeah, so you got one there. City no, of I, know, I know one is City of Angels and that's it. That was the one that came directly after. And then there's... And is, is it um, Edward Furlong plays the crow in that one? He plays the crow in the fourth one. City of Angels is someone else. Okay. We'll get to and that. And I know... I know one of them is like Mark Dacascos plays him in the TV show. It's like called like Stairway to Heaven, isn't it? <laughs> it is called Stairway to Heaven. You're killing my quiz. Like This is like another question. <laughs> the subtitles of the other three films. You got one, City of Angels. I, I, I have no idea. You could have had Salvation and Wicked Prayer. So Wicked Prayer. I think you still have seven right so far. Uh, can you name all five actors to play the crow? No. You can't? I, I can name... I can name three. Okay. The other two that you can't name are Eric Mabius and Vincent Perez. Okay. Okay. Um, There are two more questions. Several directors have been linked to a remake. Can you name any one of them for a point each? Oh, God. Um, Rob Hardy. No, that's a cinematographer. I'm thinking of someone else. It is Hardy. Oh, God. 
Ben? No. No, that's Ben that, Hardy, that's, director. He has an actor from the from uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, I believe. <laughs> no, I'm I'm, I'm struggling. I know that Momoa was linked, but you know, um, aside from that, you could have had Corin me. Corin Hardy. You could have had Francisco Javier Gutierrez. You could have had Juan Carlos Fresnadillo, and you could have had Stephen Norrington. May his career rest in peace. He was linked as well. And finally, final question. One of the four films got a video game. Which one? City of Angels? Correct. Not bad. Eight out of question mark, because I kind of fucked up my own quiz there before the end. But uh, that was very impressive. You did well. How do you feel? I don't know whether to be proud or a little embarrassed. (laughs) I was going to say, like, you could swanton bomb your way into the next one. Uh, As for the next one, the next time on No Popcorn, we are going to do another Versus episode. Um, So I'm going to play a trailer now from the original. We're going to tackle an original and we're going to tackle a remake. We're going to keep it spooky, even though we probably won't get this out until the start of November. But nonetheless, uh, if for whatever reason you're listening at a very high pitch, I would encourage you to lower your audio just a little bit. Because there's lots of screaming in this trailer. Roses are red, violets are blue, but the iris is the flower that will mean the end of it. Suspiria. You can run from Suspiria. From Suspiria. Suspiria. But you cannot escape. Suspiria. The only thing more terrifying than the last 12 minutes of Suspiria are the first 92. Yes, that was the uh, unique sound of the trailer for 1977's Suspiria. You heard the name there several times. We will be talking Dario Argento's original horror classic, and we will be comparing and contrasting it with the Suspiria from a couple of years ago, starring Tilda Swinton and Dakota Johnson. And we'll be doing so in the company of Suspiria maniac Dahio Droni. Uh, You've seen both of these movies before, I trust? I have seen both of them, yes. Uh haven't watched the 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 remake since I first saw it. Um after I was told I wasn't allowed to do it, um watch it on a train because there was a an old lady sitting beside me and you told me it was not acceptable behaviour. I tried to watch it on it on, on a it was a train from Marseille to Nice and you know French people, they have a different approach to, to cinema. I, I'm, I'm sure she would have appreciated uh, Luca Guadagnino's art. But, uh, <laughs> but you, <laughs> you told me it was a major faux pas, so I haven't watched it since. Um, watched the Argento one very regularly. It's a, it's a, it's a Halloween favourite for me. Um, so yeah, looking, looking forward to this and be good to have, good to have Dahi back, who it seems now with his obsession for the uh, Suspiria remake that he is our Berlin correspondent as yeah a, he'll, he'll love that to be fair although like, how do you feel about passing that mantle across that, like, that's been yours for so long I'm, I'm more than happy to give it to Doggy if he wants it 
Okay. Fair enough. No problem. Um, right, yeah. And listen, as for the whole train Suspiria thing, I was just trying to stop you from causing an international incident, which definitely, definitely would have happened. But David Higgins, thank you so much for braving the world of the crow. I enjoyed this. It's been fun. It's been fun. We're not going to do any of the sequels ever because I don't need that in my life. So yeah, that's The Crow. Uh, check it out if you're a fan of schlocky early 90s legacy defining movies that are mostly good, but also kind of bad. But that's kind of part of the charm. As is the same with the show, I suppose. My name is Dave Hanratty. This has been No Popcorn. There will be No Popcorn. Back soon. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Looking for a way to make online learning a better option for your family? When it comes to virtual learning, experience matters. Tuition-free K-12-powered schools are ready to put over 20 years of experience to work for you, giving your child the personalized learning they deserve without disruptions. With a K-12-powered school, students gain the skills they need to be prepared for their next steps in life, building a better future for each one of us. K-12, education for any one. Learn more at k12.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game, and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>